It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the economics and business podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. We are taping from London this week, and our guest today is Tim Harford, an economist and an FT columnist. Tim also hosts a radio show called More or Less about statistics. And recently, he produced a five-part series that rigorously fact-checked the UK referendum on leaving the European Union. And he joins us today to recapitulate and discuss the main findings from that series. Tim, welcome. Recapitulate or just capitulate? Just capitulate. I feel like surrendering now. <laughs> it's, it's also something I learned from the series was that uh, it was more of a claims check than a fact check because there's so many nuances involved. Um, there are very few hard facts because we're actually still talking about a hypothetical. Yes. And I mean, this is true in a lot of the, the fact checking that we do on more or less. This is a, a BBC Radio 4 and, and World Service series. The BBC is, of course... Uh, neutral. It has to be balanced. Um, I have my views about the referendum, but the BBC does not have views and the programme has to be balanced. Right. But very often you you can't just say, with a claim, for example, uh, that the UK Independence Party like to make that um, 70% of British laws came from the EU. You start to think about that claim, you realise, well, what do you mean by 70%? 70% by, by, by weight, uh, by word count, uh, by the number of laws, and then you realise, well, actually, what is a law? Uh, are we talking about the clauses, or, or are we talking about regulations, or acts of parliament? And in fact, what does it mean to come from the EU? Yeah. I mean, if, if it's a British act of parliament, but it is refers to an EU law, all of it refers to an EU law, just some of it refers to an EU, EU law, and, and you realise that you, you cannot just take that and go, yeah, that's right, or no, that's not right. You need the context, you need to give people... Uh, the information they need to actually interpret the claims. And many of the statistical claims that were being made, um, it was just impossible to simply say, yeah, that's right, or no, it's not. That doesn't help anybody. Right. I should have noted uh, the premise of more or less is about the use of statistics, and in many cases, and just as importantly, the misuse of statistics uh, in everyday life. Before we go through each of the main issues one by one, I want to actually just ask you a personal question about this. Um, I heard you interviewed by Planet Money the day after the referendum. You were asked to give your opinion first as uh, a citizen of the UK, as a person, uh, and then afterwards um, as an economist. And the way I phrase that makes it sound like economists aren't people. I didn't mean it that way. That was the the way I phrased it. Don't worry. (laughs) But, uh, But in both of your answers, it sounded like there was something deeper than just mere disappointment there. It sounded like you were, in some sense, um, heartbroken. Um, I guess I want to ask, how do you feel now that we're getting to be about a week on? I feel a little better, but only because I got used to it. I am very sad about the result. I, I think that we've made a mistake as a country. I think that this is going to be bad for the British economy. So that's a, a tragedy in itself. Uh, but also what this symbolizes, um, my my sister married an Italian, my brother-in-law married an Italian, my father-in-law is, is Irish, many of my friends 
are non-British Europeans. Uh, I'm a European, proud European. And it was very sad to learn that so many of my fellow countrymen just don't see Europe in the same way. Um, also, and this comes to the discussion of, of BBC's more or less and the fact-checking, I think it was a, a very dishonest campaign in a way that you, you might think, well, of course it's dishonest, it's politics, right? But British politics is not normally like this. So I wrote a piece for the FT magazine about how politicians poison statistics a couple of months ago. And I pointed out that in America, politicians seem to be able to lie with impunity. Um, in Britain, politicians had got quite good at sailing very close to the wind, uh, misleading people but not actually lying. Um, and I said in that piece, you know, maybe maybe that's worse, actually. Maybe the kind of... The, the not quite lying is worse than the lying. I've changed my mind. The lying is worse. Lying it's, is worse. it's very... It's, it's so alarming to be in a democracy where um, a campaign can just flat out lie and nobody cares. Sure. Uh, our colleagues at the FT did quite a lot of good work uh, investigating where the divisions were between those who voted to leave and those who voted to remain. Um, in general, uh, those who voted to remain uh, were concentrated in London. Uh, they tended to be young. Uh, they tended to have passports. Those who voted to leave, the exact opposite. They were from poorer regions within England primarily. They were older and did not have passports. There's been a lot of discussion in the weeks since about whether or not this represents a certain sense of English identity that may be felt threatened, but a sense of Englishness that differs between different classes of people. Would, do you think there's anything to that? There probably is. It, it's complicated, of course. So um, people in the northeast of England and people in Scotland have in many ways similar economic challenges, and they feel distant from London, and they feel that they're... Um, their views are not being respected, but the Scottish have responded to this by embracing the European Union as a defence against London, whereas uh, in the northeast of England they feel in a different way. And I, and I, I have no special insight as to why that is. Immigration was a big concern, but again, many of the places that voted very strongly to leave the European Union have quite low levels of immigration, and London has very high levels of immigration. Economic concerns were clearly high on people's mind. Of course, there was the rhetoric of the campaign where people said, why should we pay any attention to economists who were telling us to stay um, because economists didn't predict the financial crisis, yada, yada, yada. So there's that. But also just it's been a tough 10 years for most people in the world because of the financial crisis and, and the UK no exception. That disillusionment uh, and economic disappointment, I think, sets people up for a backlash for more radical, more right-wing views or more radical left-wing views. Um, I have a forthcoming column in the FT magazine about this. Um, but again, we shouldn't overcook that idea because young people, as you said, voted very strongly to remain. Young people are the people who have most been suffering for the last five or six years in the UK. They're the ones who are really missing out on economic opportunities. They're the ones who really can't afford a house. Uh, their wages are most under pressure. Uh, they're saddled with student debt um, while their parents' and grandparents' pensions are protected. 
yet they're the ones who voted to remain. So I'm, I'm always cautious of, of glib explanations. There's a lot of different things going on. Sure, sure. Okay, let's go through each part of your series then. Uh, we'll just take the items one by one uh, and we'll talk about what we know and what we either don't know or in some cases can't yet know. So the first was what you labeled the membership bill of being a part of the EU. There was this uh, figure now, I think we can call it not famous figure, quite an infamous figure because it was wrong that the UK was sending 350 million pounds a week to the EU. That's nonsense. Why was it used in the first place and why is it bogus? So 350 million pounds, the specific claim was on the the side of the the bus, the the leave bus that was being driven around everywhere. Um, and it was, we send £350 million a week to the EU, let's spend that money on the National Health Service. Um, now, that's bogus because there will not be £350 million a week to spend on the National Health Service, and we don't send £350 million a week to the EU. There's room for disagreement about how much we do send. Um, we send a certain amount of money, it's probably about £250 million a week, it varies, but then we get a lot back. The regional funds, for example, uh, to uh, regions such as Cornwall in the southwest of England, which, by the way, voted strongly to leave and now wants that funding to be guaranteed. Still wants the money. Yeah, we still want the money, uh, but from London this time, thanks very much. So that's a little frustrating. Um, and of course, you could say, well, uh, we don't have to spend that money on Cornwall. We could spend it on the National Health Service, but you can't spend it on both. So that was that was a lie. That was false. And we were able to say, I don't think we ever used the word lie because we're uh, genteel on the BBC. (laughs) But we said that was false, was wrong. The other thing that was clear was that the membership fee, it's not a small amount of money. It's billions of pounds, billions of dollars a year. But it's probably fairly modest compared to um, the likely... uh, wider economic impacts of leaving the European Union, which are probably negative, but some people say they're positive, but whether you accept they're positive or negative, they're a lot bigger than the membership fee. So it really didn't didn't deserve that much attention. Yeah, and either way, you can't consider something like a membership fee separate from the counterfactual scenario where the UK was never in the EU and drawing in the benefits from it. Yeah, uh, because uh, partly because many of the um, alternative models that are now being suggested, for example, the Norway model, where we we still have access to the single market, Norway pays membership fees to the EU. Switzerland, they have a different deal with the EU, but they still pay some membership fees to the EU. So the idea that we would not pay any membership fees is, well, there are diplomatic arrangements where that would be true. But yeah, it it was annoying. It was a little bit like going to the supermarket and buying... uh, um, spending say um, fifteen dollars on on beer, um, but it was you know buy two cans buy two packs of beer for ten dollars each and you get five dollars off, uh, so you paid fifteen dollars right and saying that was twenty dollars because it's ten dollars each for the beer yeah, but you got the five dollars back right <laughs> you like it says on your receipt twenty dollars and then five dollars off so you only paid fifteen dollars and also you got the beer yeah <laughs> you got the beer too right so. Annoying. Okay. But there uh, you go. Let's uh, let's talk about immigration, which was part two in your series. I was surprised by the wide range of estimates for um, how many immigrants come to the UK each year uh, from 
the EU and from outside the EU. Uh, I think the estimate you noted was that about half comes from the EU, half from outside the EU. Um, but it could be anywhere from several hundred thousand up to six hundred thousand. Uh, this was interesting. Yeah, there, there were there were different numbers because. Uh, if you count the people who are registering registering for national insurance numbers, you need a national insurance number if you're going to work. It's like a social security number. You need it if you're going to work. You need it if you're going to claim benefits. There were people. There were many more people applying for those numbers than seemed to be tracked by the official immigration figures. So that was a source of confusion. But in the end, the Office for National Statistics have figured it out. And basically, what these people were doing was they were coming for three months in the summer, for nine months, maybe to study for a year. Uh, and then going home again. And those people are not counted as immigrants. And I think correctly not counted as, as immigrants, but they still have national insurance numbers. Um, a lot of people don't recognise the fact that immigration into the UK has been high, very, very high by historical standards for the last 15 years or so. But a lot of that is actually not from the EU. In fact, I think it was this year was the first year that there was more from the EU than from outside the EU. Um, so you have people uh, being united with their families. You have people coming to study for three years from China. A lot of people from from former uh, British uh, colonies, uh, British Empire, the, the uh, Pakistan, India, the Caribbean, and we could put a stop to all of that if we wanted to, but we don't want to, and and rightly so because it would be terribly damaging and unfair. Um, but of course, the rhetoric of the campaign was we could take control of immigration from the EU. Uh, if we left. It, but it's not clear that if we did leave, and if we do leave, that anything much will change. In fact, many of the Leave campaigners are now saying actually not much is going to change. But I think you were you were interviewing either someone from the Leave campaign or somebody who's describing the Leave campaign position. I can't remember. But the point was that even outside of the EU, it's not like the UK is going to tell Spaniards, uh, nope, sorry, you can't come here anymore. Of course, the UK benefits from having people from within Europe migrate to the to the UK. Yeah. So we had one of the more, um, I think, economically progressive uh, Leave campaigners, Andrew Lillico, an economist, saying, yeah, we don't want, I don't want migration to fall. Um, and that's not why I want to leave the EU. But of course, there were other parts of the Leave campaign selling a different message. Um, there was a sort of independent estimate from a, um, a migration skeptic think tank called the Migration Watch. And they estimated that if we had the same rules for EU migrants. At the moment, anybody from the EU can come to the UK. There are no rules at all. They're all welcome. Um, if we left the EU and used the same rules for EU migrants that we currently have for non-EU migrants, we probably would halve EU migration, but we certainly wouldn't get rid of it. And we would still have quite high levels of migration. Next segment was about laws and specifically how many of the UK's laws are made by the EU rather than by the UK Parliament. Uh, this was fascinating because you had Nigel Farage of UKIP saying that it was 70%, and you quoted Nick Clegg, leader of the Lib Dems, saying that it was closer to 7%. And then you got into the nuances, and this, I think, was the one that required the most amount of caveating the caveats. You know, well, the, basic, <laughs> the, the basic answer is it's a stupid question because yeah. it doesn't tell you, the percentage of laws doesn't really tell you much. So there are EU regulations that are, could be about you know, the design of um, plugs or kettles. Uh, are they laws? Are they not laws? You know, you could ha say so either way. There are British parliamentary laws, acts of parliament, that were done in order to enact European legislation. Some of them, European legislation is a little footnote. It's just mentioned in passing. Others, the whole purpose of the law was to enact 
uh, a European rule. So there are lots and lots of different ways to count them up. It, it's pretty clear that quite a lot of British laws uh, are effectively determined in Brussels. But the other point we wanted to make in the programme was, um, well, it, you know, we also get influence over those laws. And it is partly about ensuring a level playing field, standard, you know, even regulatory standards across the, the European Union. So the other part of that programme was to say, how often have we been outvoted? Um, and Leave campaigners were very fond of saying we've been outvoted more than 50 times, um, which is true. The UK has been outvoted more than 50 times. It's been on the winning side about, I think, 2,400 times, if I remember. But of course, there are instances where we don't get our way. So you count them all up and you can say, well, is is that a lot or not? And I think there's no statistical answer to that. People can just decide what they think is okay and what they think is not. There, there was one interesting part of this segment too, though, which is that being outvoted by, you know, on more than 50 laws sounds like a lot relative to other countries. But the UK and this government in particular has liked to make it public when the UK was outvoted, whereas other countries tend to play it quieter. So we're not actually sure that this is an abnormally high number, right? Yeah, because the French apparently, uh, they might oppose something quite vigorously. And then when it comes to the vote, if if, uh, they've been outmaneuvered or other people disagree with them, they'll just vote in support because they're that's how they want to express their European citizenship and the UK like to express their dissent. So you don't learn a lot from comparing uh, voting records. Uh, the next segment was about regulation, specifically the question of whether or not UK businesses uh, were suffering under the yoke of climate change and labor rights and financial regulations. And if so, by how much uh, would you find there? So we had a, a prominent Eurosceptic basically arguing that the the idea that we're drowning in regulation from Brussels is completely wrong, which is interesting. Um, he said, look, the climate change regulation, banking regulation, ultimately this stuff does not come from the EU. It comes through the EU, but the climate change regulation comes from Kyoto and the various post-Kyoto negotiations, the Conference of the Parties, the um, banking regulation comes through Basel. So th- these they, they may be intermediated through Brussels, but fundamentally these are international regulations. And if we left the EU, um, we would still have to in some way engage with that regulatory process. Now, he argued, and it's a fair point, that we would be better off doing that as the UK than as part of the EU. Other people take the opposite view. We're better off as part of this larger bloc you can clearly see that either way, and I don't have any special insight into that. Okay. Um, um, the, I mean, the, the other point I think to make is if you look at neutral estimates, for example, from the OECD or the World Bank of how regulated the British economy is, it's not very regulated at all, um, certainly not compared to other EU member states. So there are two views of that. One is clearly it hasn't done us any harm being a member of the EU. The alternative view is Everybody else in the EU is more regulated than us. It's just a matter of time before they drag us into the the regulatory tangle. They'll try, and that's why we need to leave, so they don't succeed. Um, But if you look at the most serious regulations that really bother business in the UK, they're planning, which is set by London. Uh, They're the minimum wage, which is set by London. And they are the rather complex thicket of the tax system, which is not totally set by London, but it is mostly set by London. 
So okay. we, we're perfectly capable of generating our own regulations. We don't need Brussels to do it for us. I'm going to actually file these last two laws and regulation under the category of like totally negligible issues, right? In other words, uh, more politicized than anything else um, in terms of what the impact might be. I mean, is that fair? That is that is how it seems to me. I mean, look, I'm a kind of I'm a neoliberal economist, right? I'm kind of uh, economically right wing, like like most economists. I'm all in favor of limited red tape and and liberal regulations. Uh, that's but and by liberal I mean you know the yeah, British classical definition. Liberal, yeah, so. classical liberal, like you know, light touch, um, non burdensome regulations. Um, but I just couldn't see that Brussels was was tangling us up. A, a, a lot of it appears to be a myth generated by the British newspapers. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. And these things are hard to pin down. Absolutely. You can never be completely sure. Okay. Uh, this is the last one. Uh, trade. Uh, and it seems um, that under this category, there's a couple of issues. One is whether or not the UK could strike better trade deals with other parts of the world by not being part of the EU. And then the other one is, well, how much trade would it lose with the EU by leaving? Yeah. And one of the questions here, the big question is, of course, what is the deal that we would have with the EU? Would we be in the European economic area like Norway? Which, which can you define that for? Basically, this is like, um, it's like an adjunct membership of the European Union. So you still have to respect the EU regulations with a couple of small exceptions. So the Norway has, Norway has an exemption for fish, basically, which is important if you're Norway. <laughs> sure, I mean, it's, sure. it's important. But basically, they, they have to abide by most European regulations and they have to pay European membership fees, but they're not actually part of the European Union. Um, they have the free movement of people, for example. If you're from Poland, you can move to Norway. If you're from the UK, you can move to Norway. If you're from Norway, you can move back again. So in many ways, it's like being part of the European Union, but officially you are not. Um, this is clearly a, a model that has been um, rubbished by Leave campaigners up until now because they knew that immigration was a big concern of their core support. Um, but since the Leave vote, a lot of them have been backtracking and started to make noises about, well, actually, maybe the Norway model wouldn't be such a bad thing. And the Norway model is very similar to being in the EU. Just We just have slightly less power. Anyway, so, so the argument is, well, would we be in that sort of situation? Or would we be completely outside the, the EU, dealing with other countries uh, on a WTO basis? Or, as one economist, Patrick Minford, said, why don't we just go the full Hong Kong? and just take down all our trade barriers and be a global free trader uh, unilaterally, not trying to negotiate any deal with anybody. Just say, right, we're taking down all our trade barriers and you're, you guys are welcome to do likewise. Which, from a classical economic point of view, is very appealing. Politically, it's not that convincing. It's not clear to me that the 52% of people who voted to leave the EU did so so we could become the Hong Kong of the West and just take down all our trade barriers. Minford himself admitted it would be very bad for a lot of British manufacturing to lose trade protection. Um, so politically, it probably wouldn't happen. I, I can't see it happening. And then there are arguments about economically, would that really help? Because a lot of modern trade is not really just about, well, we've got some coal. And if you take down your tariffs on coal, we can ship you some coal. It's like, well, we're trying to sell you insurance. And that just involves you know, banking regulation licenses. and Or we're trying to sell you computers. And we've got to come to an agreement about the radiation given off by these things and the environmental regulations. And the modern trading economy is actually all about agreeing standards. It's not about tariffs anymore. So I think Minford is, is he's a very serious economist, but he's in a very small minority on this one. Sure. Most economists felt that 
that we would lose quite a bit of trade and that would be bad for the British economy. And they disagreed about exactly how bad, but very few people thought it was going to be good news. Right. Well, there, there are several channels through which this could have an impact on the British economy, right? One that you noted was uh, less investment because a lot of uh, foreign companies might uh, not want to set up their factories in the UK if they I mean, can't sell to the so EU. Siemens building uh, wind turbines in Hull. They've just established a new factory there. Uh, they're going to ship to the rest of the EU. Will they build? Will they build the next one? Will Nissan build another car factory? Maybe. I mean, it kind of it depends what the deal is, but it, it, it's not helpful. The uncertainty isn't helpful, and if there are trade barriers between the UK and the EU, I think some of those some of those investments that would have been made will not be made. Right, investments, loss of trade. Possibly, if some of the immigration flows do get tightened up, a smaller economy, slower growing population, even if it's not that much, you know, the comparative advantage of London might be eroded as a financial center, things like that. Uh, One of the reasons that I thought this series was so helpful was that in the economic models of what would happen to the UK economy if it ends up leaving, you have to embed all these assumptions, Yeah. right? And that makes it really difficult to know what's going on. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I should say, I've... This is Alpha Chat. We're not bound by BBC impartiality no. rules. So I'm giving you my take on what I think we found. Sure. If you were to listen to the BBC series, these things might be phrased in a slightly different way. We're trying to give equal weight to both sides and be fair and outline our reasoning. But I have to say, as an economist, when you look at the, the weight of evidence, I don't find the case for leaving very convincing. I really hope I'm wrong. It is possible that I am wrong. It is possible that this is no big deal and actually it will be just the jolt that the UK economy needs and we will find exciting new ways to do business with the rest of the world. That is possible. However unlikely it seems from here, sure. From right now and where I'm sitting right now, um, yeah, it it seems a faint hope. Tim Harford, economist, FT columnist, uh, book writer and host of uh, More or Less on the BBC Radio. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for today's show. Rate and review us at iTunes, and I want to give a special shout-out to James3317 for his very kind review that he left earlier this week. We really appreciate it. You can also call us at 917-551-5012. That's a U.S. number for our overseas listeners. You can also email us at alphachat at ft.com. On Twitter, I'm at Cardiff Garcia, and Tim is at Tim Harford. Simple enough. The one person here who absolutely never needs fact-checking because what's the point? She's always right is the amazing Amy Keene, our producer and editor. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. 
At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.